1: Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey,
2: everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. My guest this week is Tom Verucci, the phenomenal senior writer for Sports Illustrated, also a major league game and studio analyst and reporter for Fox Sports and MLB Network, Um Really, nobody better when it comes to writing long-form baseball in the United States than Tom Verducci. And the subject of our conversation is probably the best to ever do what I just mentioned, Roger Angel, who passed away last week at the age of 101. Tom Verducci wrote a piece in 2014 titled The Passion of Roger Angel, the best baseball writer in America, is also a fan. Just an incredible piece on Roger Angel's life and his approach and, and how he became who he was. And we have a conversation, Tom Verducci and I, on Roger Angel and his impact and how he saw the game and the sort of the 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 the, not the notion, but the um the art of baseball writing and long form baseball writing in particular. Roger Angel's relationship with the players of his era, Bob Gibson was incredibly close to Roger Angel. He let Bob Gibson didn't let anybody into his life and And he let Roger Angel into his life. And so um, just a great conversation with Tom Verucci, who knew Roger Angel very, very well about his work. And then Tom and I got into some modern stuff, including the Josh Donaldson, Tim Anderson um, stuff that went on uh, uh, over the last weekend. Um, Tom's thoughts on that. Um, The Mets and their sort of reemergence under Steve Cohen, a a Steinbrenner-like figure. Talked a little bit about Joe Davis. And then ended our conversation with Sandy Koufax, who somebody Tom Verducci has um, has written about as well. I usually do this at the end of the podcast, but I'll, uh, I'll do it here. Again, if you like these com- kind of conversations, please head to wherever you get your podcasts, you know, Apple Podcasts or Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's the only way this podcast is going to continue. It is independent from The Athletic, and uh, those reviews mean something because obviously my boss has checked those out. So without further ado... Let's go to Tom Verducci on the great Roger Angel. All right, as I said at the top, Tom Verducci is the guest. If you're a baseball fan, you do not need me to introduce him, though I will. Senior, longtime senior writer at Sports Illustrated, where we uh, we work together, and he's a MLB game and studio analyst and reporter for Fox Sports. Tom, before uh, I say hello, I always tell the story when I was when I was when I was 19 years old. I wrote two. Letters to two sports writers. One was local in Buffalo, the Buffalo News. He was a sports columnist then. The other was Tom Verducci, the Buffalo News sports columnist. Though I I lived 10 minutes from this person, at least as the crow flies, never heard back from him. I heard back from Tom Verducci, handwritten letter. Beautiful. Tom, your penmanship back then was incredible. Uh, two, three, I think it was two or three pages where Tom was kind enough to... Um, offer some thoughts on uh, an idiot 19-year-old's uh, copy and uh, his desires to one day work at Sports Illustrated. That letter is still somewhere in my mom's house. And I, you, all these years later, you never forget. You never forget when someone just does something that you unexpect, uh, that's unexpected. And, uh, and Tom Verducci, indeed, when I was 19 years old, wrote me a letter and looked at my stuff. I will never forget it. And Tom Verducci, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast.
3: It is great to be back. And Richard, I love that story because first of all, I'm a huge fan of letter writing and the disappearing craft that it is. But I always imagined myself too. And I I know it was like to be young at that age and and full of passion and and wanting to figure out how do I get to do what I really want to do. So uh, yeah, I've been in those shoes and uh, I'm I'm glad you wrote because that, that meant you had passion for it too, to take the time to do something like that.
2: Yeah. And again, it was amazing to get a handwritten letter too. You are correct. It's still, if you, and again, I do not do this, so it's not, I'm not I don't want to sell the fact that I do, but if you want to make an impact on somebody, a handwritten letter in 2022 is so different than what we are used to with immediate communication and texting and, um, and everything else, it, it really will stand out because even sort of letters today that you might receive in the mail are usually either typed or some kind of pre-formatted stuff. But you're right, Tom, like the, the handwritten letter is, a, is a lost art. Um, and so I will always remember that. Um, all right. Tom is not here to, 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 talk about my mediocre career. He is here to talk about, um, Roger Angel. And that's why I wanted to have him here. Roger Angel, of course, if you were a baseball fan, you know, he passed away this weekend. Uh, I think unquestionably the the, 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 he was the greatest living baseball writer. I mean, these are obviously all objective things, but, it's sort of a it's a tough really a tough one to argue against. And Tom, um, as we're taping this on Monday, May 23rd, he's written a piece that's going to be published in Sports Illustrated today. I haven't read it yet, but I assume it's on Roger's life. And Tom wrote a piece that I you absolutely, if you're a Roger Angel fan, should go read. It's in 2014. It was titled The Passion of Roger Angel. The Best Baseball Writer in America is Also a Fan. And Tom, that's where I want to start. Um, You spent some time with Roger Angel in his own habitat, and what did you learn from that experience, spending time with Roger?
3: Oh my goodness. Uh, It's so much. It's kind of hard to really encapsulate what I learned because it was like a master class on on writing, interviewing, um, just the business of covering baseball and life lessons as well because what really stood out to me, Richard... Was Roger at the time was 93 years old and, and still writing and, and writing as well as ever. It's just an amazing career that he did have um, besides just being the best, as you said. And I, I agree 100 uh, percent, just prolific and, and didn't lose anything into his 90s, which is just so impressive. Um, so I learned from him, you know, just the sweet spot that he enjoyed in his life where he did pursue something that he absolutely loved, did it better than anybody else. And was at a stage in his life at that point where he, you know, he was just so comfortable with what he had done, who he was, the people around him and family, that to jump to the, 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 uh, the highlight of that piece that I wrote, he took me to the graveyard where he will be buried. There was a tombstone there and he's standing on his grave and it says Roger Angel and had everything but the year of his death on it. Uh, next to his second wife and uh, nearby his, his daughter who had been deceased and a, a late brother. Uh, it was just amazing to me that, that he shared with me some of his, obviously, personal feelings. And just to connect it to the writing, Richard, you know, something he stuck, said stuck with me. I had known it already, but it really is profound coming from him. That when we write, and we write about baseball in particular, we're so dependent on people sharing their lives with us, right? The best stories that we write generally are the ones where the people are most giving with their lives. And Roger just understood that and cherished it. And here he was, the greatest baseball writer ever, doing that to me. I felt tremendous responsibility and, to be honest, a little bit of pride that I was even in that position, uh, that he trusted me and listen it's to me it's one of my favorite pieces i'm lucky enough to do something where i get to talk to people who are the best in the world at what they do Uh, baseball players i'm talking about but in this case it was about a writer the best in the world at at what he does Uh, and to be in that little time and space with him and, and to share those our love of writing and baseball together and just be treated like a friend was really something special and unlike anything else that I've done. Did
2: you stay in touch with him from, uh, I mean, you'd obviously known him prior to the, the 2014 piece, but had you stayed in touch with him over the last eight years?
3: Yeah. I mean, as you said, I had known him for years. He, he wrote a really nice review in the New Yorker when I wrote the Yankee years with Joe Torre, you know, I just really nice things to say about me the way the book was written. And there's really obviously no higher compliment that you can get than coming from Roger Angel. So I had known him, but really spending time with him at the ballpark in New York, in Maine, where he's he spent basically almost nine decades of summers, um, really in his element. Um, I think that's where it became more of a friendship than just a professional acquaintance. And yeah, we stayed in touch. It sort of germinated this friendship where you know I would initiate the calls and check in with him every once in a while. I made sure I called him on his. 100th birthday and i was thrilled to hear he celebrated with champagne and cake and i would call him on opening day every year it was like this you know really a national holiday for us who love baseball and what better way than to bring up roger angel and when i talked to him this year opening day i gotta be honest you, he sounded really well i mean sharp as ever um i knew he was going through some issues physically wasn't feeling great But to speak with him on the phone, engage in long conversations, and obviously he starts telling stories, it was Roger being Roger. I'm thrilled that that was really the last time that I spoke with him was on opening day, and there was nothing different about Roger Angel.
2: What is the piece, Tom, that that you wrote that will be published this week on him?
3: It's really an appreciation, Richard, of who he was as a person and some of the lessons that I learned from him. Uh, It's very easy, and I've done this too, just write about what a talented writer he was and and just quote from just the amazing catalog of stories and features that he wrote uh, and the way he did it, unlike anybody else and better than anybody else. So I wanted to sort of tack away from that while not ignoring it, but uh, this happy place that he was in late in life, he was married for a third time. His wife, Peggy, is just a charming woman. Um, as you probably know, he wrote an incredible essay in The New Yorker in 2014, the same year that it, actually I wrote my story about what it was like to be in his 90s and the, the challenges and the, and the joys as well of what it means to be that old when you've outlived most of your friends and family and and your parts, your body parts have outlived their warranties. Uh, it was unblinking. Roger never liked sentimentality in writing. He was not a sentimental baseball writer. And this was not a sentimental piece. But he told me he got more feedback on that story than anything he ever wrote. He wound up winning a National Magazine Award for Essays and Criticism for that piece. And again, he's 93 winning awards. Um so that really was the takeoff for me that he found joy, such joy in his life from what he did and the people around him. And that never changed. And and I describe in the story I wrote today, what happened in his his last days with Peggy at home. And it was, it was just beautiful and touching to hear. The, um, you
2: know, it's a bit of cliche, Tom, to sort of say that like, um,
3: you know, we we'll,
2: there'll never be another, you know, fill in your athlete here. And a lot of times there is like, the, the, the athlete may be different, but um, someone from a, a future generation sort of surpasses the previous generations, whether it's output or metrics or how you you know, how you evaluate it. Here's the thing with Roger Angel that I, I would like to get you uh, to sort of think about. Um, and I know, I know you know this, I should say, to get to think about. Given his longevity in writing, but here's the more important one. He, is, he's, he went from the, the, the game prior to the modern game. To, to the modern game. So this is a guy who was alive and walked around and saw Babe Ruth in Manhattan. And then in his later years, obviously, he sees Shohei Ohtani or Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Like Vince Scully, like his career can't be duplicated because we will never go back to a pre-modern game again. So do you agree that for Roger Angel, is sort of really, truly like a subset of one in that his career can't be duplicated because all baseball writers after him will have never been brought up in the era that he was brought up in because it might as well be from 1700 or 1800s. like that world doesn't exist anymore.
3: Well, I agree hundred um, percent. First of all, I'm not sure it's, it's hard to imagine anybody being as talented, but the biggest thing is I think we have changed so much and the way we consume sports and baseball. Think about Roger was gifted and he, he admitted this all the time to me with the two greatest luxuries a writer could have, and that is time and space, right? He wrote incredibly, as he said, oceans of space in, in The New Yorker. He wrote incredibly long pieces. He was able to just write without flourish because his, his writing actually was uh, full of just clarity and, and really brevity. If you really dive into it, it was just full of, of um, quotes and and descriptions, especially descriptions, so he took advantage of space and time. I mean, think about one of his best pieces for me was after the 1975 World Series, Reds and Red Sox. Um, you know, it was in the New Yorker. It was called Agent Court and After. And to me, it was baseball and Roger Angel at the top of their game. When you think about that World Series, and it's hard to imagine a better one. And baseball's popularity at the time is, is certainly was unmatched uh, among sports. Uh, And Roger was in his 50s at that time. And it's, of course, it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece. Um, But think about, you're reading that in New Yorker. It's probably a month or so after the World Series. And he's going into these paragraphs of description about Luis Tiant's windup on the mound. And it's just beautiful and lyrical. Today, think about someone reading a story about the World Series a month and a half later, full of description about somebody's windup. Right, you get that you know on your Twitter feed with highlights immediately. So I don't think there's an appreciation as as we have as fans and especially as readers of the craftsmanship of really stepping back and appreciating what we're looking at. We're we're kings of convenience. Every technology is amazing, but what it's done is it, it traffics on convenience more than anything else. So we want things quick and fast. And we look at people who in the media business are incredibly successful. They're usually first or they're loudest that the idea that you can do something just better than somebody else by taking time and crafting something is really sort of been lost. So I don't know that we allow someone like Roger to write in that fashion. And that's definitely not to the same degree that we did back when he was writing in the seventies and eighties and nineties in the New Yorker.
2: Yeah, that's well said. Um, You wrote the writer ages, this is in your Roger piece, the writer ages, but the players do not. And I wanted to get a sense from you. How did Roger Angel, do you have a sense of how he felt about getting older in the press box while still continuing to cover people who were in their twenties or early thirties?
3: Yeah, I think it became difficult for him to be honest with you. And he did say something to me about the first time somebody called him, sir, (laughs) It kind of knocked him back on his heels. Uh, and I remember at the time I talked to him, it might have been a, a little bit later, um, He, David Remnick, the New Yorker editor, wanted him to write a piece on Derek Jeter. And and Roger didn't feel like he knew him well enough that so much had been written about Derek. He wasn't sure how much he could do, just didn't feel as connected. And part of that was just sort of the physical nature at his age of getting around to the ballpark and the access. and and being able to spend time with people. Uh, And I know at the very end, his wife told me this, that he missed sort of the vibe and the camaraderie of the the press box and the field. Um, It just became something that was physically just too daunting for him at the end of his life. But I think as he did grow older, it was harder to just have the time and connect with people because what he did best, I think, and it really came across in his writing, is to connect with people. I mean, he wrote a story about Bob Gibson, who, as you know, was famously difficult to get along with when it came to the media. Well, Bob Gibson invited Roger to his together, which is amazing when you think about Bob Gibson spending three or four days with anybody at the media, never mind three or four minutes. Uh, And he gave Roger a swimsuit. They hung out in the backyard swimming pool. He told him stories he had never told before. Um, and when the piece came out, Bob Gibson sent Roger a picture of himself and wrote on it, the world needs more people like you. And that's just one example of how well he connected with people. A great listener. I always thought some of his best skills, and we know about the writing skills, of course, but his best skills were the powers of observation and empathy. And his ability to connect with people, I think, is why so many of his stories just resonated with, with so many people. He started writing baseball at 41.
2: Uh, so he came to it late in life as a writer. How do you think that impacted him in writing about baseball?
3: I think it was an advantage. <clears throat> I do. It was, and I wrote about this in the piece in SI today. It's like one of the most beautiful requiems ever written was written by Giuseppe Verdi. Requiems are Catholic funeral masses. And he was anti-clerical, probably even agnostic, but it sort of took maybe someone who was something of an outsider in the Catholic church to write this beautiful requiem. And in some ways, Roger came to baseball as an outsider. He always loved baseball, um, but he wasn't necessarily trained on it. As you mentioned, he first started writing in 1951 in, in, uh, at the age of 41, 1962. And I think it helped that he didn't have these preconceived notions. He wasn't trained as a beat writer where you literally are taught to remove yourself from the situation, be this impassioned or dispassioned observer. Keep yourself out of it. Um, and, and there weren't rules of the road that he had to follow. Like if he went to journalism school, which he didn't, he actually cut his writing chops on a, writing for a GI news, newsletter during World War II. If you went to journalism school, they'd say. Don't put yourself in the story. It's not about you, right? Well, he famously put himself in the story just about all the time. And he said one of his influences was John Updike. He later became a really close friend and editor of John Updike. But that famous essay that John Updike wrote uh, about Ted Williams' his last game at Fenway Park You know, John Updike talks about sitting there in the stand. He puts himself in the story. Well, Roger, really, that came very easily for him. I'm not sure if he was trained in a J school or trained as a beat writer, that he would do that so well or so easily. So to me, he was guided by passion, not by the normal rules of the road. So I think that really helped him. And the biggest thing was that he he just loved baseball and was curious about it. And you take any of the best literature in the world and you're going to find the root of it, there's curiosity. And that was true into his 90s as well. He never stopped learning, never stopped wanting to know what is it about this person that makes him tick? How does he throw a curveball? All those little questions that may seem like minutia, but sort of open up to your life story and and who you are. Uh, He was always interested in that. So when you're guided by curiosity and passion, you know, good things can happen.
2: His mother, um, Catherine White, was the first fiction editor of The New Yorker. His father, Ernest, was a lawyer, and his stepfather, E.B. White, is where Catherine White, uh, his name there, um, is obviously, you know, if you're, if you know anything about literature, you know, just incredibly famous, and, you know, one of the, wrote one of the guiding books, sort of, on how to write well, um, it's like, in a way, he was sort of cre- he's like a li- he's like a writer created in a perfect lab, right? If you uh, if you wanted to have um, uh, parental figures who would sort of push you towards a writing career, it seems like Roger Angel had uh, had about as good as uh, as it gets. When he when you spoke with him, did he did he reference his his family and not obviously just whatever he felt about them, but the fact that these were I mean these were literary lions, basically that he was surrounded by at a pretty young age.
3: Yeah, no, you're right. It was, if you want to be a writer, it was the perfect upbringing, just being around people who cared so much about writing and other writers as well. We'll be in and out of the house. Um, you know, he told me stories about um, when he right, was writing and uh, spending summers in Maine, you know, he was writing on a first floor study and Roger's room was upstairs and the door would always be closed, except we'd come out for lunch. And he'd always be kind of crumphing under his breath about how difficult it was to write and then he disappeared for another few hours. And then, you know, on Monday, you know, the magazine would come out and Roger would read this thing that E.B. White wrote and would just be blown away, blown away by how easy it appeared to be the final product. So he got to see, you know, how things were made when it came to the writing process, he understood and respected how hard that it was. And I think he never took it for granted. But, you know, I'm sure it was an inspiration for him, not just to write, but to write really well. The standards were so high. I mean, you're talking about the New Yorker and some of the greatest writers of that generation. Um, How could you not be influenced by just not wanting, not just to write, but to write really well?
2: I want to ask you one thing about processing him. Uh, You wrote in the 2014 piece, the press box is no different. Heads are down, buried in laptops, tablets, and smartphones, angel device free. Sees only the game. Um, So was he uniquely different in terms of when he watched the game uh, the way the um, and maybe he obviously had the advantages of working for the New Yorker. You're not you don't have to tweet out like what happened in the fifth inning or something like that. But even um, whether you saw this firsthand or whether you talked to him and sort of were able to glean it, um, he, he seems to have watched the game differently than The responsibilities of the modern baseball writer where, you know, your office is saying, file this blog post after the third inning, tweet as much as you can. You know what I'm saying? So we get audience Tom in the seventh inning. Go do a quick video hit for us. Like just he he's he he seemed to approach it and had the luxury perhaps of approaching it differently than the modern baseball writer. 100% There. Well
3: 100% right and probably luxury is the right word and that's a sad thing because Roger and I would joke about that that you know a baseball game to me it's like it's like almost a daily puzzle that deserves your undivided attention because there's so much going on that maybe is not right in front of you that you know a lot of people are watching the game and they only look up when they hear a crack of a bat you're missing so much in between and i understand that in the modern world Um, you know, people are kind of yoked to the the pressures and and demands of social media. So you are pulled in different directions and it is a luxury to be able to enjoy baseball without that. I mean, he was amazed going to the ballpark and we sat at games at Yankee stadium together. You know, people would wait online at concession stands for 15, 20 minutes while the game was going on. It struck him and me a little bit as well. That not it odd? Didn't you come here for a baseball game? But, you know, most people, you know, just want to have a good time and they're not into every single pitch the way someone like Roger Angel is. Um, but it spoke to me again, his powers of observation, attention to detail. Um, you know, he had these unique notebooks. There was only a special kind of notebook, the company Mead that made them uh, and they stopped making them after a while. He just loved the way the, the paper caught the ink of his pen. And when they stopped making him, them, he had to go back and grab older notebooks that had a few blank pages left. And he started using those. Uh, and he showed me the way he would keep notes. And he, what he would do? I found this really interesting, too. He would draw pictures. Um, and you think today with your phone and, you know, you take pictures all the time if you wanted to preserve something. Um, but he would draw pictures. He showed me this picture he drew of Hideki Matsui. While interviewing Matsui, he's just um, kind of jotting down what Matsui looks like. And he wants to kind of um, remember the expanse of his chest, the wideness of his neck, just the powerful build of Matsui. So he draws himself a picture. I thought that was fascinating. Um, So his mind worked in a very different way than most people. But again, you get back to I'll go back to the word you use luxury. It was a luxury for him, but he took advantage of those luxuries to produce baseball literature like nobody else. Did he keep score during a game? Uh, He did. And I I know when I spoke uh, with Peggy, his wife, this week, this weekend, um, the last game that he went to was a spring training game this year in Sarasota. And uh, he was not able to keep score. I mean, his vision was really, really poor at that point. Uh, But she kept score. So that in case, you know, somebody came up and he wanted to know what did this guy do his last time up, she would have the answer for him. So, yeah, I mean, he was uh, an inveterate note taker and really didn't miss much at all.
2: I actually don't know the answer to this. Maybe you do. Do, What was the last thing he wrote or was he working or are you aware if he was working on something, um, at the time he passed?
3: I don't think he was working on something. Uh, not that I knew about, at least he had not mentioned it to me. Um, You know, he did that last essay that he wrote in 2014 with This Old Man. He did turn that into a book. Uh, He wrote several blog posts after that. Um, But I'm not sure what his last real long feature story was for The New Yorker. It might have been that This Old Man in 2014. But he enjoyed blogging. You know, he, I think he, um, I think he saw the freedom in that, that not everything had to be a magnus opus. Um, that he had something to say he could get it out there so he, he definitely changed with the times I want I want to do uh, one more about Roger and then I want to ask you just a
2: couple quick questions uh, about baseball uh, and you actually before we go Not that this would be important at all Tom uh, but I am curious if from just sort of your perspective if you think anybody would have would have known Ro- Roger Angel, his connection to the sort of the more modern players in game probably would be more managers. Like he was very close with Joe Torre. Um, You know, David Cohn on the, I think on the Yankee broadcast spoke about Roger Angel. Do you think any current players had any sense of his passing and what he meant to the game? And by the way, if they didn't, that's not a pejorative on them. These are 25 year old guys. I don't expect them to um, necessarily be familiar with, um, this incredibly famous writer who was 101. But I'm wondering if you think anybody did. Was there any outlier you think who might have been aware that one of the great baseball chroniclers of all time died in the last couple of days?
3: Awareness, I probably think it's probably a few who are aware of at least reputation of Roger Angel without knowing him personally, of course. Um, I'd like to hopefully think some of these guys were aware, maybe growing up, of, they heard about his books Um, I think he did get when the year he was inducted into the hall of fame Well, the baseball writers wing of the hall of fame in 2014 um, there was, I think a good amount of of appreciation going on. So I think just maybe the universe of people who were aware of Roger, uh, you know, maybe name recognition, but actually diving into just how good he was and kind of the meat of his writing, probably not. And I think I agree with you. It's just a different generation that, you know, Listen, I have kids that age and they don't read a lot. So it's just a different world. Uh, So I wouldn't necessarily expect them, but I'd like to hope some did. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits
1: you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562- 314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
2: Let me ask you a question just about uh, base- long-form baseball writing, which you obviously do, and you're one you're uh, one of the best to do it uh, of all time, and I think, personally, in my opinion, the best of your generation. Um, the I. I don't want to have the sort of debate like, oh, man, is like long form gone forever? Because like the reality is they'll always be long form, like in some kind of form. Books will always exist. There'll be some kind of long form. If it doesn't run in a like a print product magazine, it will run online. That said, I do want to ask you like one thing I sort of have noticed is the amount of places that do it gets fewer and fewer and fewer. The Athletic still does it a little bit. Obviously, ESPN, you might see it. Sports Illustrated, obviously the occasional New York Times, but that's what I would like to ask you about is I don't think the, the art of it will ever go away, or I don't think the medium will go away, but it does seem that less and less places in 2022 run it. And so I wanted to just get your sort of perspective on that, that are you optimistic in that there's going to be a, a place for this where someone will pay for it, which is really the most important thing so that it can continue and and that you'll have the resources for it, or, I don't know, 50 years from now, this has sort of just become more like one-offs, where, okay, here's this really interesting person who has an opinion, or who's this interesting writer, and in addition to all the other things they're doing technology-wise, they decide to write a 4,000-word piece on X. How do you, I know it's a little existential philosophical question, but how do you see it?
3: No, it's a great question. And I'm optimistic in terms of it always, and I mean always having a place in our world. I mean, I, I joke about this, but it's somewhat true that there's nothing better than a good story well told. And that's been true since, you know, the caveman went out on a hunt and came back and said, What do we do? Well, let's draw some pictures to tell everybody what we just did. Well, you're telling a story. And the methods change, the platforms change, the screens change, but still the demand for a good story well told will always be there. That's essentially what a movie is, that you fall in love with a movie because it's a great story and it's well told. So I think there's still a place for that in the written form and baseball. <clears throat> there's no question that the, the space for that is more narrow. Um, I, I don't know that it's gonna expand or get even more narrow, uh, but I do think it will always be there. Um, listen, there's not a great, it seems like a demand for it or even rewards for it. If you're a kid who wants to write about baseball, since there's not a lot out there long form, what's really driving you to do that? Well, that probably has to be something that comes from within anyway. But if you think about incentives that are out there, um, you know, it's to be, again, to be fast and quick, and, you know, you know, have a sense of humor and all these things. You see, it. there's great baseball writing out there. Don't get me wrong. There's probably more of it when you think about the options that you have than ever before, which is fantastic. But I think what you're talking about is the really long form stuff. Um, yeah, there's less of it. I think there's less demand for it, but that doesn't mean it's it's less impactful because, I mean, you know, if you read a great baseball book, a great feature story, you want to tell somebody about it. Um, You want to share it with people. Uh, And it still happens. But again, I'm not sure the demand is ever going back to where it was just because things happen, as you know, so much faster now. The news cycle is so much faster and even it's actually hurt the game of baseball a little bit because what baseball is really does. And, and Roger talked to me about this. Baseball is a linear game. You can see it develop over time. Something happens and that leads to something else. You know, the other sports there's collisions going on. There's a lot going on at one time. You have to go to replay to sort out what's happening or what just happened. Uh, but baseball takes time to play out. Now, listen, there's too much time in the game today. I get that. Um, but it rewards patience and stick-to-itiveness and being at the grindstone. We're not great at those things anymore. We don't value those like we used to. So it's the same with the long-form writing that reflects that. Always, I think, always, I'm really bullish on that, to always a good place for that, but probably a more narrow space.
2: Yeah, and I totally agree with you. And it's really worth repeating that Like, there's never been a better time for baseball information. Uh, if you want to read about the the analytical part of the game, I mean, Fangraphs is just, just an incredible site. Like, that didn't exist, like, 20 years ago. Uh, I love even reading about, like, uh, um, MLB draft prospects. And there's some great writers who just write, like, incredible mock drafts on, like, who people are going to draft. That essentially didn't exist 20 years ago. So, Tom, you're totally right. Like, the amount of information out there has never been better. We'll see sort of how um, the feature-writing element uh, –
1: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: A couple more things here. This is very much in the news, and I wanted to get your, um, your thoughts on this. The Josh Donaldson, uh, Tim Anderson thing um, with Josh, and Josh Donaldson calling uh tim anderson jackie tim anderson obviously sort of taking offense to that josh Donaldson then coming up with sort of his reasoning for it which is a little convoluted and then obviously the white Sox basically saying these were racially charged uh comments um how did you see it from your perspective pretty ugly scene that happened in major league baseball and one that um if nothing else tom like will the story will continue the next time the white Sox and the yankees play like i don't given the, the sort of charges here, I don't think this goes away, but, um, you know, there's a lot to the story, including like the reference of obviously one of the most iconic signature people in the history of the sport and the history of the United States.
3: Yeah, agreed. agree. It, it, it uh, caught me off guard. Um, I actually go back to kind of what, y- uh, Yosemite Grandal said after the game, of course, he was the one who confronted Josh Donaldson when he came up to the plate and, and that's when benches started to empty. Uh, but he said, you know, some of these things were said around the game and the heat of the moment, you know, years ago. And he, he said, I'd like to think that we're beyond that. And I thought that was well put because, you know, what Josh Donaldson thought maybe was just part of baseball needling back in 2019 because he said he did call Tim Anderson, Jackie, back in 2019 and reference the Sports Illustrated article. Um, it, you know, it resonates completely differently now since there's been a lot of reckoning about, you know, racial inequality. Um, so it's it's a big room, but you have to read the room. And if Tim Anderson or anybody is offended by something that you said, well, you have to do some self-examination and say, well, what is it that that person finds offensive? Can I put myself in his shoes and now understand what it is that caused this problem here? Um, you know, and Josh, I thought, did his best to explain himself Um, But to really get beyond it, you have to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And, you know, hopefully Tim and and Josh can actually get together and talk about it in person, because that's how all of us learn to to get beyond some of these incidents is is really the communication on a one-on-one basis. And again, doing a lot of listening. And the big thing for me is Josh Donaldson or anybody, put yourself in the other person's shoes. If that person says they're offended by something that you said ask yourself, well, what was it that person found offensive and how would I have felt if I was in that situation? And it's it's more than a misunderstanding, obviously, Richard, uh, but hopefully that they can understand each other better by talking it through. Tom, you covered the Mets
2: um, in the 80s uh, when um I think either, either if the double days and Wilpons didn't both co-own it, you certainly were there during the Wilpon the early Wilpon era. They're now owned by Steve Cohen. Um, this last uh, sort of off-season for the Mets was insane obviously just given who they uh, brought in. What, you know, as a as an old Mets beat writer, um, what do you make of Steve Cohen and the new Mets? And it strikes me again as someone who lived in New York City for a long time and you know grew up with uh, you know essentially the at least at the end of the Steinbrenner Yankees spending, like it strikes me that like the I would never say that the Yankees aren't going to be great because it's just sort of they're the Yankees. It's always going to exist, but it does feel like we may have a, a the other team in New York now willing to, if nothing else, um, spend every year to be great, which should make that market really, really interesting for a long time, baseball-wise. How do you see it?
3: Yeah, well, and you, like me, understand and remember back in the 80s when New York was a New York Mets town. It was a nationally town. The place was unbelievable. Shea Stadium had more than 50,000 people, uh, and it rocked, man. The energy in that place, it was the way they played baseball. It was the style. It was the personalities yeah. That was, it was probably
2: this, the, it, the 80s, too, was sort of like they were very unique to the 80s. Right. Brash. Oh,
3: bold, yeah. Like
2: kind of annoying, probably if you weren't part of them. <laughs> yeah.
3: No, listen, I spent a lot of time with those guys and on the road. And I tell people all the time and you've probably seen some of the docs on ESPN and things. I tell people all the time, if you hear a story about the 80s Mets and it sounds crazy, just assume it's true <laughs> because there's a good <laughs> chance that it was. Because anything was possible with that group. But that doesn't take away from what they were on the field. That was that was one of the best rally teams I've ever seen. Of course, the 86 postseason was all about rallies, whether it was against Houston or Boston. Um, man, that team was driven. You know, they wanted to kick your butt, especially when they were losing a game and probably fight you, too, at the drop of a hat. But... I do see some similarities, not in personality, with the this team is a very different team. The game is just played differently on and off the field in the world today. Um, but I think they want to be great, this team. And I think they've had some of those signature wins early in the season that if you're a Mets fan or a Mets player, you start believing there's something special about this team. You have to You start out believing that you're that kind of a team, but there comes a point where you know you're that kind of team. And I think they're getting to that point, injuries aside. Um, But I think it's great for the sport. Are you kidding me? I mean, look at baseball right now. The two teams in L.A. are doing well. The two teams in New York are doing well. Um, You have stars around the game. But I think having a strong National League team in New York, as you said, the Yankees will always be there. They're the gold standard. I get that. But there's no reason why, you know, the Mets can't be on almost equal footing with them when it comes to influence around the game.
2: I have two more for you, Tom. Uh, Joe Davis is a colleague of yours at Fox, and he um, he was named by that uh, by that company as the new voice of the World Series. He's in his, I think, early thirties. No, I'm sorry, mid thirties. I should know that. Um, and replaces Joe Buck, obviously, who was the voice of the World Series for many, many, many years. I know you work with him, and I know you know you work at Fox. So you know you should take Tom's. Uh, whatever Tom says here, and that he's he's connected to this. But this is a big moment for baseball, right? To get a new voice in the World Series after the, the, the previous voice has been doing 20-something World Series. Like, Joe Davis, for many, gen- perhaps if he stays in the role, right, for multiple generations of baseball fans, will be the conduit to how they... Um, take in the biggest moment of the sport every year. Agreed. And
3: in no way should anybody underestimate the impact Joe Buck had on the game of baseball. I mean, as you mentioned, an entire generation has grown up with only Joe Buck doing the world series. I mean, he is the voice of the world series. He's just personally and technically just an outstanding play by play broadcaster. Uh, To me, he's a gold standard that if you're in the business and you're up and coming He's a guy you listen to and you don't you never want to copy anybody, but you certainly want to pick up with his ability to me to be on point in the biggest moments. And like a great singer where you leave a little bit of that that last bit of octave to raise the the crescendo of the song. He's able to do that the biggest moments and just nail it. And in between, he's smart enough to have the brevity to let the game breathe. He's not someone who's going to fill up the broadcast with a lot of words. He's just going to find the right words at the right time. That's a gift. Joe Davis is going to be his own person, and I'm happy about that. Listen, as you know, he <laughs> walked into the Dodger job after who else but Vince Scully, right? So he's used to following a legend. Um, but it's like Vince Scully told me when I did a story at him a long time ago that the advice he got early on from Red Barber starting out in the business was, be your own voice, be your own person. Don't water your own wine by trying to copy somebody else. Uh, and I, you know, I know Joe Davis well enough to know he's not going to try to be Joe Buck. I think Joe Davis has gotten better with each year. I mean, he was good out of the gate, sort of like this prodigy, but he's gotten better with more reps. And um, I think I think it will be just fine. I don't even worry about him as I would with a lot of people. Like you come in behind a legend and you try to do it the same way. I don't think he's going to do that. I think he's very comfortable where he's at. And I know he loves baseball and is just super excited about this opportunity. I've been lucky enough to do some games with him in the booth. Uh, He's super prepared for a game. He's not going to be caught short and not know something. He's, you know, like the rest of us, when we leave a game, you want to make sure you still have like 95% of your stuff on the cutting room floor, right? You want to be prepared for wherever the game goes. And he's that kind of a broadcaster. Last one,
2: Tom. Um, you know, and I was thinking about this just given I knew I was going to talk to you about Roger Angel. Um, you profiled Sandy Koufax in 1999. Uh, the left arm of God, I believe, was the headline of that uh, story. I remember that, and Koufax very, very famously was not a was not an athlete or even a former athlete who who talked to anybody. And it, you know, that was like it was. It almost seemed inconceivable at one point. I imagine to get a long form with Sandy Koufax. Um, and so I was thinking about him, he's 86 years old now, obviously he's not as old as Roger was at 101, but have you thought about it all about just, and maybe you have not just sort of rechecking in with him because like he's another athlete that will not be sort of duplicated. Just the, the greatness, the short amount of time of that greatness, uh, how he, uh, thought about his own religious beliefs and how that ultimately impacted how he, um, pursued his baseball profession the fact that he sort of always was like ageless the guy at 70 looked like he was like 40 he's another guy just is always fascinating i'm sure part of my fascination is because my mom's from brooklyn and he was such an important figure in new york city but uh before you go you you we we ended our chat i just wanted to check in with you on koufax and i don't know if you're still in touch with him if he would be of interest for you to to write about but this is another guy that like i feel like you know um We should appreciate that he's still around because, again, he's like a subset of one. And you're never going to get another Sandy Koufax, just given what he did at that time.
3: Uh, No, I, I, Richard, I agree 100%. And sort of like Roger Angel now, I think there's a whole generation of people who really should know who Sandy Koufax is, not just as a great pitcher, but as a great person. As you mentioned, that story that I wrote it's crazy 20, to think about now. That was 22 years ago, right?
2: 23 years ago. Do my math. Yeah. It's
3: crazy, yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, again, a whole generation of people, I think, I would like to think they should know who this guy is. And, you know, I've stayed in touch with him and I always usually see him during the postseason at Dodger Stadium. He loves going to games. You know, we'll talk, but it's more nothing more than just, you know, private conversations. We don't really talk about baseball. He's a big, actually a big NCAA basketball yeah. fan, as you know. Um, so, yeah, I would love to do that. It's almost like I'm so respectful of, you know, how he values his privacy. Um, so, you know, listen, if he were willing to do that, I mean, listen, that would be unbelievable. There's no question about it. What's interesting is that kind of connecting the two of them. Sandy Koufax at one time bought a farm in Maine, and that was part of the story that I wrote about Sandy Koufax. It was really soon after he finished playing. It might have been a year after or two years after. Um, As you know, he retired early, I think 30 or 31 years old at most, still getting people out, but his arm hurt so much he had to quit. Um, But with life ahead of him, he just went to the woods in Maine and a farm and had this beautiful place. And I kind of wrote about what it was like and why that fit Sandy Koufax so well. And then here I was years later back in Maine with Roger Angel, Brooklyn, Maine. Uh, he was there for summer since he was a little kid, learned how to drive there and learn how to sail. And it was a huge part of his life. I don't know. There's something about Maine, I guess. It's a beautiful yeah. place, first of all. Um, but yeah, Sandy Koufax is one of those guys. You say the name is just like. There's magic to it. You almost think this guy didn't exist because it's such a magical name in baseball. But again, like Roger Angel, you know, the playing career in this case or the writing career speak for themselves. It's hard to say that there were anybody who did what they did better, but if you get to know the person a little bit, you realize, and Vin Scully's in the same category. These people are even better than you want them to be. And that's asking a lot. When you look up to people who are as good as they are at what they do, you know, the bar set pretty high and Sandy Koufax, Roger Angel, Vince Scully, they all exceed the yeah. bar.
2: I don't know what's going on in Maine, Tom. There's a fountain of youth thing going there. That's probably the moral <laughs> of this, uh, this conversation. Tom Verducci is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and also an MLB game and studio on Austin Reporter for Fox Sports. You'll obviously be catching uh, him this season for them. Tommy, are, uh, are you, do you have an MLB network schedule of like, is it to, do, do you, how does that work these days with that?
3: I do. Um, usually, it goes month by month. Um, doing a lot of games this year with Bob Costas. We have. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. The Angels coming to Yankee Stadium, and nice. uh, another week and a half, yep. I think, uh, to get see Otani in uh, not quite Babe Ruth's ballpark, but the history obviously against the Yankees. So looking forward to that and working with Costas is just awesome. Yeah.
2: Okay. So you can catch, I was just going to, I wanted to double check this. So you can catch Tom obviously on um, select games with the MLB network. And uh, I mean, that's a great uh, listen when it's Costas and Tom Ferdici. Tom, uh, you've always been generous with me with your time. I mean, going back obviously to the, to the, to the nineties, but even as a colleague at Sports <laughs> Illustrated, um, it was awesome to work with you. And it really was truly like uh just such an honor to say that, you know, you were on a staff with Tom Berducci, even if you, uh, and in my case, weren't doing baseball. So I wish you nothing but the best of uh, success and, and best of health to you and your family. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast.
3: Hey, Richard, my pleasure. Always enjoyed talking with you. And I, I will thank you for doing this podcast essentially on Roger Angel, because maybe there's a lot of young people out there kind of under, trying to wonder what's all the fuss about. I would just say, pick up anything that he's written. It's like a great band or a great musician. There are things that you may like more than other people. You have a favorite. Somebody else is a favorite, but he's literally so good. You can pick up anything that he's written and you'll be blown away. Awesome.
2: Great, uh, great thought. And uh, as we referenced in here, that New Yorker piece on that Roger Angel wrote um, uh, essentially about sort of old age and being uh, uh, and getting older in life is incredible and, and well deserved for the National Magazine Award. All right, Tom. Hopefully, I'll see you at a ballpark one of these days. Be well. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Tom Berducci, uh Always awesome, and just was incredible to work with at Sports Australia. I cannot tell you just how good a colleague he was. But not just that. Like just to be able to say you work with Tom Berducci probably is the same as like you know, um, if you're you know a baseball player and say, oh yeah, you know I played with Otani. You know, I played with Tony Gwynn or something like that. So thank you to Tom. That was really really great. Uh, if you go to the archives, uh, hopefully things or hopefully something that you will enjoy. The previous podcast before this one, Leslie Visser on her Hall of Fame career, and Eliana Limon Romero, who this month became the first female sports editor in the history of the Los Angeles Times. Prior to that, we had Chad Finn, who's on um, this podcast often. We talk about the NFL's national television schedule and uh what networks did really really well for that larry Colmas the great horse racing caller on calling Rick strikes amazing kentucky derby win had a life after sports media conversation amy moritz amy k nelson and Cat o'brien uh three very prominent people in sports media who transitioned out and now are doing other things uh, again there should be some stuff on the archives that you like susie colbert gus johnson Joe Davis, actually, who we referenced in this podcast, was a guest on this podcast April 8th, 2022. So check out the archives if there's something you like. Uh, uh, listen, and uh, hopefully it holds up. want to thank everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. Of course, thank you to Patrick Antonetti, who does a great job with this podcast every week. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.